Here comes the sun. Da -da -da -da. Here comes the sun. And I say, it's all right. Da -da 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 Welcome back to my podcast on USMLE Step 2 Review. Today we are learning about um, nervous system specifically related to the surgical portion of the exam. So let's begin. Let's talk about brain herniation. So subfalcine herniation. This is a type of brain herniation that occurs when the cingulate gyrus is displaced under the fox cerebri. So this type of herniation will not cause pupillary involvement. It may cause ipsilateral anterior cerebral artery compression. And if you remember, ACS compression will lead to a contralateral leg weakness. But you will not have pupillary involvement with subfalcine herniation. Hemorrhagic stroke. So patient with intracerebral hemorrhagic stroke, what do they look like clinically? They'll have a rapid clinical deterioration, especially when there's brain herniation. So if there's any change in clinical status, the ABCs, which is airway breathing circulation, should be assessed because the intubation and mechanical ventilations may be necessary. Another thing to remember is that cocaine can precipitate intracranial hemorrhage and should be suspected when uh, a stroke occurs in a subcortical location. And if the, you have a young patient with associated sympathetic activation or the absence of your typical risk factors that you would think with hemorrhagic stroke. How do we manage hemorrhagic stroke? We manage hemorrhagic stroke uh, by preventing further bleeding, so that means blood pressure control, anticoagulation re reversal, and uh, also maintaining normal intracranial pressure. Okay, so remember that the amount of blood that is delivered to the um, brain is a function of how much is actually our blood pressure and then our intracranial pressure. So if intracranial pressure is too elevated, blood is not actually going to be delivered to the brain. So we want to maintain that. Hypertension is treated with a reversible and titratable antihypertensive. So that would be like IV nicardipine. Okay, so uh, more on hemorrhagic stroke. Cerebellar hemorrhage that presents with progressive headache, nausea, vomiting, um, but in addition, you'll also have vertigo, ipsilateral truncal, which is, uh, or limb, ataxia. So remember, if this truncal uh, ataxia, that means that the cerebellar vermis is affected. If it's limb ataxia, that means the cerebellar hemispheres are affected. You also have dysarthria and nystagmus, so cerebellar hemorrhage. You have headache, nausea, vomiting. Truncal or limb ataxia, dysarthria, nystagmus, and vertigo. Um, CT scan always will demonstrate to you a posterior fossa hyperdensity, hyperdensity. And uh, what is next step is you want to do urgent surgical decompression in patients who have neurologic uh, deterioration. 
or and you see a hemorrhage on radiographic imaging, or if there's brainstem compression or obstructive hydrocephalus. So again, you do surgery on patients with neurologic de deterioration, uh, hemorrhage greater than three centimeters, brainstem compression or obstructive hydrocephalus. All right, uh, lastly on hemorrhagic stroke, uh, remember the intracerebral hemorrhage, so ICH, that also presents with headache, nausea, vomiting, and altered mental status over a period of minutes to hours. Um, so ICH in young patients is due to AVM, so arterial ver uh, venous malformation, and that will also present with recurrent headache, seizure, or focal neural deficits. So ICH, intracerebral. In the young patient, you think arterial venous malformation. Okay, that's all for stroke. Um, next, let's talk about traumatic brain injury. So traumatic brain injury okay, can cause damage to cortical areas responsible for inhibiting lower sympathetic centers. So you would actually have a disrupted inhibition will result in a paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity a syndrome characterized by a rapid onset of tachycardia, hypertension, tachypnea, and often accompanied by fever and diaphoresis. So when you think about a TBI, um, this damage that can actually lead to a sympathetic hyperactivity because you have disrupted inhibition. More on TBI osmotic therapy is our initial treatment. So you'll do hypertonic saline or mannitol. And it works by, how does it work? It works by increasing an osmolar gradient that draws the water out of the edematous brain tissue um, and that reduces the parenchymal volume and overall intracranial pressure. Remember, we talked about intracranial pressure and how um, it is in correlation, correlated to how much blood is delivered to the brain. So if it's increased, then we have less blood that will actually be uh, delivered to the brain. So we need to reduce it, and we can do so with osmotic therapy. Acute traumatic coagulopathy, which is a state of hypocoagulability and hyperfibrinolysis, uh, it can complicate TBI. And so what, what uh, is the next step of management? If you see anything similar, you would want to do an antifibrinolytic therapy. So that is tranexamic acid. Um, it can improve, tranexamic acid can improve outcomes for patients with moderate TBI and um, acute traumatic coagulopathy. Okay, so that is what we have as far as TBI. One last thing to mention is short-term hyperventilation also helps. It helps lower Increase intracranial pressure by causing cerebral wash out of the CO2. So remember when you're hyperventilating, you're getting rid of CO2. So 
By getting rid of CO2, you can lead to vasoconstriction and decrease cerebral blood flow. So remember that CO2 usually is the main molecule that uh, leads to um, brain oxygenation, actually. So when you decrease it, uh, it will lead to vasoconstriction and it will decrease the blood flow and can actually reduce intracranial pressure. Okay, so that is what we have for TBI. Next, let's talk about spinal cord injury. So spinal cord injury is a whiplash, actually. If you see a whiplash, um, can cause cervical strain without associated cervical spinal fracture. So just because you don't see a spinal fracture should not rule out a spinal cord injury. Um, and what is the next step of diagnosis in patients with cervical trauma? You definitely want to um, use imaging to determine whether, uh, well, we use the clinic, validated clinical decision rules. That is a National Emergency X-ray Utilization Study, NEXUS. Uh, to determine whether cervical spine imaging is needed. So obviously not everyone has a spine fracture, but usually they end up needing uh, CT uh, just and then further imaging to see if there is any spinal cord injury. More on spinal cord injury. What if you see a single vertebral fracture in a patient with a blunt trauma? Uh, what is that an indication of next step, kind of similar to what we talked about? So no fracture, you want to refer to the validated clinical decision rules. But if you see a fracture, you definitely want to image the entire spine. And the CT is a screening modality because it has sensitivity and it's accurate. So that is the preferred method. Um, and in, in other indications include high energy mechanism of injury, uh, and or any of the following, so if they have neurodeficits, spinal tenderness, altered mental status, intoxication, or a distracting injury, you want to do a CT scan. One spinal cord injury, um, cervical facet dislocation. The cervical facet dislocation occurs with forced flexion of the cervical spine. So if you fall onto a flex neck, a uh, single facet will be dislocated and um, re result in radiculopathy of the corresponding nerve root. So the most common is C5-C6, which will lead to C6 radiculopathy. And you can also have C667, which will lead to C7 radiculopathy. So Make sure that you understand the nerve distribution. I think seven, six definitely goes to the thumb. Um, seven, uh, and imaging will demonstrate intersubluxation of the vertebral bodies. So if you have any uh, radiculopathy and you have a patient who fell um, onto a flex neck or any history that's similar, you definitely should suspect cervical facet dislocation. Again, cannot say it enough, but CT scan will be your preferred modality for spinal cord injury um, and would show you exactly the pathology that you're dealing with. 
So acute spinal cord injury, uh, remember, manifests with loss of spinal cord function, right? So you have irreflexia, anesthesia, paralysis, distended bladder below the level of the, of the lesion. Um, so a lesion that arises above T1 will also have some neurogenic shock. And due to interruption of the descending sympathetic fibers, remember that the sympathetic fibers are thoracolumbar. And so anything that arises above that T1, there will be total interruption of those sympathetic fibers. And you will have an unopposed parasympathetic response, which will lead to hypotension, bradycardia, the typical sympathetic response that you would think of, as well as hypothermia. Um, because you will have peripheral vasoconstriction. Central cord syndrome. So central cord syndrome is usually common after whiplash type injuries. Um, it's common in older adults who already have an underlying cervical spondylosis. Um, the damage of the central cervical spinal cord ca will cause upper extremity motor and sensory and reflex abnormality. So upper extremities, motor, sensory, reflex abnormalities. We can also have sacral and lower extremity function. Well, actually, the sacral and lower extremity function will be preserved. That's how you know it's so central cord syndrome, whiplash, older adults, cervical spondylosis, and most of the extremities affected are the upper extremities. Everything else is good. So we talked about the spinal uh, cord injury above T1, which will lead to neurogenic shock um, and will lead to decrease of sympathetic fibers function. So now let's talk about a lesion above T6. It can actually be complicated by autonomic dysreflexia. And that what that means is that a noxious stimuli below the injury level will trigger an unregulated sympathetic response leading to severe hypertension. So it's kind of the opposite of what you will see. So below T1, you don't see any uh, sympathetic response. Above T6, you can actually have an unrelated, unregulated sympathetic response. And um, so the compensatory parasympathetic response above the lesion will cause bradycardia. So think about it as a patient who comes in to the ED after some sort of trauma and it says that any noxious stimuli, so noxious stimuli, anything that causes pain will then lead to severe hypertension, but at the same time you have bradycardia. So that's kind of that unregulated uh, sympathetic response and a compensatory parasympathetic response. So hypertension, bradycardia, you're thinking, hmm, seems like two different things that you would expect. And the management usually includes removing of the noxious stimuli and treating of hypertension. So that is spinal cord injury. Let's talk about also with spinal cord injury, the disruption, what causes bladder, uh, bladder issues is actually disruption of the autonomic tracts. Um, and so you can have urinary retention. Therefore, um, it is recommended to perform catheterization 
to prevent bladder distension and possibly injuries in these patients. Definitely, when you have a spinal cord injury, especially uh, in the patient that comes in with some neurodeficit, definitely want to go ahead and place a catheter because, again, that distension can lead to further complications. Um, due to urine stasis, you can have infection, you can have retrograde flow of the urine, which will then lead to possibly uh, hydrodephrosis, can also have kidney injury. So these patients already are going to have a lot of to deal with, and so anything that can reduce their stay and, and uh, induce quality of care, definitely recommended. That's all for spinal cord injury. Let's talk about, real quick, radiculopathy. So cervical radiculopathies, uh, what is it? It's a spinal nerve root compression. Um, and usually, how does it present? So it causes neck pain first and foremost, accompanied with upper extremity sensory motor deficits. And these deficits will, will follow a dermatomal or myotomal pattern. Okay, so cervical radiculopathy, first is pain. Second is upper extremity sensory motor deficits that follow a dermatomal pattern. That's how you know. And lateral flexion and rotation of the neck would usually worsen the compression of the nerve root and worsening as well as pain and paresthesia. So paresthesia is numbness, tingling. Um, any flexion or rotation laterally of the neck will, will um, worsen those symptoms. And how do you treat and how do you diagnose and treat a, a radiculopathy? So diagnosis is usually made clinically uh, because most patients improve uh, uh, with symptomatic treatment. And the treatment includes NSAIDs and avoidance of the triggering, triggering activity. So if this occur during um, intense work, uh, then obviously we'd need to limit those activity until the activities, uh, or if the patient's super active, you need to tell them to reduce their activity until they get better. So that is radiculopathy. Radiculopathy. Really quick, cervical myelopathy, since we're talking about uh, things in the cervical region. So cervical myelopathy um, causes both a spinal cord and a spinal nerve root compression. So you can have spinal cord injury by itself. You can have radiculopathy, which is spinal nerve root compression. And cervical myelopathy, you actually have both spinal cord and spinal nerve root compression. And this will result in myelopathic symptoms. So these are upper motor neuron signs below the lesions. And radicular signs, which are lower motor neuron signs and pain in the dermatomal myotomal pattern. So it can kind of fit a cervical radiculopathy picture. But the one thing to remember is that with myelopathy, you'll have these upper motor neuron signs below the lesion. And upper, neuron, upper motor neuron signs are things such as hyperreflexia. Um, 
and you, the way that uh, you differentiate it too is limit sign is a re- electric shock like pain with neck flexion will occur. So you don't really have that when we talk about radiculopathy. Sure, if you do lateral flexion or rotation, you may have in worsening of the pain or paresthesia. But as far as the shock sign, that should point you towards a myelopathy, which is both a nerve and spinal cord compression. Very well. Um, something they also really like on the USMLE is um, hematomas. So going back to brain injury. So with hematomas, things to remember is subarachnoid hemorrhage is sudden onset severe headache. And it is accompanied by vomiting, stiffness, fever, loss of consciousness. The CT scan is usually the best diagnostic step. Anything in the brain, you definitely want to do CT scan without contrast um, first. In regards to other hematomas, we can also have an epidural uh, hematoma. And epidural hematomas, if you remember... Uh, they occur because of the tearing of the middle meningeal artery and they typically occur with the skull fracture. So patients will have loss of consciousness and then uh, followed by a lucid interval. Um, They will initially remain alert. However, with hematoma expansion, they will have neurologic decompensation and signs of elevated intracranial pressure. So that's headache, nausea, vomiting, uh, alter mental status within minutes to hours. So first loss of consciousness, then lucid period, and then they will deteriorate again. There are also things like spinal epidural hematoma. And these are complications of neuraxial anesthesia. So when patients have had epidural block or lumbar puncture or spinal surgery. Um, it's more common in older adults, especially those that are taking antithrombic medications. So they already have a state of easily um, of hypocoagulability because of that antithrombic medications. And the uh, manifestations that you want to look out for are progressive motor and sensory dysfunction and localized back pain. And you can also have bowel and bladder dysfunction. So in patients who've had if you've had a patient who had like epidural block, um, like these are pregnant patients, or lumbar puncture, or maybe in the patient who had meningitis, or a patient who had spinal surgery, and this is a patient who's older and taking medication or antithrombotic, um, you definitely want to think about spinal epidural hematoma if they present with the localized back pain motor and sensory dysfunction and bladder dysfunction. And the management is an urgent MRI and neurosurgical decompression. This is urgent. 
Very well. Let's talk about the subdural hematoma. So subdural hematoma um, is a rupture of the bridging veins. Remember epidural, MMA, subdural bridging veins. And it's common from head trauma. So risk factors are increased age. So with increased age, we have uh, brain atrophy. And so those veins are more susceptible of injury and also chronic alcoholism, which can cause brain atrophy. Other risk factor is anticoagulant use. And so when you do a CT scan non-contrast, an acute subdural hematoma will be crescent-shaped. Crescent-shaped, and it can cause suture lines. So... That is all for uh, spinal cord injury. Um, going back to, in general, our cervical myelopathy, the most common cause in older adults is spondylosis. It's a degenerative spine disease that causes scanal narrowing with spinal cord compression. Um, so remember, myelopathy will have spinal cord and spinal nerve compression. So spondylosis already narrows the canal, and the way it's going to manifest is you'll have gait instability and weakness in the extremities. Um, you could also have lower motor neuron signs or the signs of lesion and upper motor neuron signs below the level of the lesion. So that's cervical myelopathy again. Then let's talk about a patient who has sudden onset of severe headache, visual disturbances, and um, you see you see that she also has uh, like acute signs of adrenal crisis, so hypotension. Uh, distributive shock. Uh, one thing to think about is pituitary apoplexy. So pituitary apoplexy is a sudden hemorrhage into an enlarged pituitary adenoma. And uh, the way that it results is that there's not only loss of pituitary function, uh, but there's also an absence of ACTH-induced cortisol production uh, because cortisol actually helps maintain vascular tone. And so in that absence of ACTH-induced cortisol protection, production, uh, you'll have adrenal crisis uh, with severe hypotension and distributive shock. So if your patient has had a history of gastric surgery or chronic malabsorption, so IBD or ex excessive zinc, ingestions and now they're produce uh, they're they're uh, presenting to your office with uh, progressive myeloneuropathy so this is similar to b12 which is distal extremity paresthesia numbness sensory ataxia anemia hair fragility skin depigmentation hepatosplenomegaly edema osteoporosis all those signs uh, should point you to a copper deficiency so copper deficiency is uh, common in patients who've had gastric surgery, um, and the signs are similar to B12 deficiency. So something to learn to know and to keep in the back of your mind is orbital floor fracture. Um, it presents with entrapment of the inferior rectus muscle. 
And so that will result in vertical diplopia. So when they're trying to look up and down, they see double and restriction of upper, upward eye movement. So any patient who's had orbital floor fracture will have vertical diplopia and restriction of upward eye movement. So neurofibromatosis, uh, which we, I feel like, like a lot in the USMLE, and they um, are, especially with neurofibromatosis, one thing to remember is that they form vertibular, vestibular schwannomas, which will present as hearing loss and imbalance. Um, if they're bilateral and hereditary, they're most common associated with neurofibromatosis too. So remember that they are bilateral. Carpal tunnel syndrome. So this is the most common mononeuropathy in patients with end-stage renal disease on, dial on dialysis. Uh, it's also common in patients with hypothyroidism. Uh, and with patients with hypothyroidism, it's frequently bilaterally. Remember, it's also common in patients who are pregnant. Um, and the way that it's presenting would be with pain, paresthesia in the lateral hand. And the symptoms will usually worsen. So with patients who have dialysis, especially the patient will worsen during dialysis, and they'll be more severe in the arm that is getting vascular access. Um, the reason why patients with hypothyroidism get carpal tunnel is that hypothyroidism causes soft tissue thickening and mucinous infiltration. This can lead to compression of the median nerve within the carpal tunnel. That is carpal tunnel, which is a topic they, that it's commonly asked, fairly asked on USMLEs museums. Talk about RA. So, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they're actually at risk of atlantal axial instability. Atlantal axial instability. Neck extension during intubation can result in the subluxation with cord compression and cervical myelopathy. So, if you have a patient with RA, they tell you they're going for a surgery and they're after the surgery presented with spastic paraparesis or of the upper and lower extremity or hyperreflexia or any sensory changes that have positive events field those upper motor neuron signs. Um, think about um, atlantal axial instability um, and that's usually common in patients with RA because cord compression and cervical myelopathy. Normal pressure atosophilus. So this is a pa patient that presents with incontinent cognitive impairment and gait abnormalities. However, remember, not all these symptoms are present in early disease. And actually, the only one that really um, may be present is some gait abnormality. Um, this can be idiopathic or secondary to neurologic insult. So if you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, trauma, meningitis, the scarring of the arachnoid granulations um, that are responsible for CSF resorption. So when you don't, uh, you're in, enable, you're having increased resorption or you're unable to 
reabsorb uh, some of the CSF that leads to the typical picture of hydrocephalus, which is ventricular megaly, but normal opening pressure on lumbar function. Similarly, uh, malignant hypothermia. So malignant hypothermia is a genetic disorder that is associated with sudden onset, tachypnea, tachycardia, myoglobin, myoglobinuria, and masseter or generalized muscle rigidity. This is following an exposure to succinylcholine, which is, uh, or a volatile anesthetic. So this is typical for patients who are going some sort of operation. And then it tells you that the patient was awakened and suddenly they have tachypnea, tachycardia. Um, they didn't know what was going on. They did the blood urine sometimes and this, the this blood, but no red cells. And they also have muscle rigidity. Think malignant hypothermia. Um, this is usually actually not when they're waking up. It's shortly after induction. Um, but they can be also delayed after anesthesia is seized. Dentrally will be your treatment of choice. Botulism. So... Botulism of the wound occurs when Clostridium botulinum spores contaminate a puncture injury. So the spore are the one that are contaminating um, versus you can have like IV needle. Um, but these spores will gem germinate and generate a neurotoxin. And so the manifestation include symmetric descending neurologic deficits. Cranial nerve palsy, respiratory compromise, autonomic dysfunction. In contrast to the foodborne and infant botulism, fever and leukocytosis may be present. That's how you differentiate foodborne botulism from wound botulism, which is made by Clostridium botulinum. Um, and you need urgent treatment with equine botulinum antitoxin. And it should not be delayed for diagnostic evaluation. Cauda equina. So if the patient comes with severe low back pain radiating into one or both legs, and there's a saddle anesthesia, so sensory change in the genitals and perineum region, this patient also tells you that they've had some bladder and bowel um, or sexual dysfunction. Definitely think cauda equina. This is the most common uh, following a large lumbosacral disc herniation um, and an urgent MRI of the lumbosacral spine is required, followed by surgical decompression. So if there's a patient who comes in and they have headache, seizure, have some um, like mild focal neural deficits, and then you suspect, hmm, let me do imaging. And when you do imaging, you see uh, a extra axial, well circumscribed, dual base mass that is partially calcified. Think meningioma. And in such case, um, complete surgical resection is recommended.
meningioma. Let's talk about syringomyelia. Okay, so syringomyelia is, if you think of a patient who had um, Arnold Chiari type 1, and you have loss of pain, temperature, sensation, but you have preserved touch, vibration, and proprioception. Um, usually with syringomyelia, what happens is you have a fluid-filled cavity of the syrinx that compresses the surrounding tissue. Okay. And the diagnosis is made with MRI, and management is surgical intervention. So this is a patient with Arnold Chiari 1 or, uh, or spinal cord injury, and usually they'll have that um, loss of sensation in the um, cape, is what they say, cape distribution which is upper extremity and like a cape-like distribution. Syringomyelia. Shoulder dislocation. So acute shoulder dislocation after forceful abduction and external rotation at the glenohumeral joints. Um, if you've had that, if you have shoulder pain after such a move, then think anterior shoulder dislocation. And it can cause uh, injury to the axillary nerve remember and remember that the which two muscles the axillary nerve innervates it innervates the teres minor and the deltoid so with those these are the um, ones that are usually involved in shoulder abduction so the patient will have weakened shoulder abduction and decreased sensation over the lateral shoulder anterior shoulder pain Back to brain herniation, so rapid hematoma. Um, first sign of if you have a patient who presents after head injury, they have an ipsilateral fixed and dilated pupil. Um, one thing you should consider is uncle herniation. Remember, we talk about subfalcine, and there's no pupillary. Uh, dysfunction, but you could have the ACA syndrome, which will lead to contralateral leg weakness. While with this um, uncle herniation, you'll have uh, oculomotor compression, and the first sign will be ipsilateral fixed and dilated pupil. You also have contralateral hemiparesis because of the compression of the cerebral peduncle. Um, this is rapid, uh, this is brain herniation causing uncle herniation. Femoral neuropathy. So the femoral nerve um, is responsible for knee extension and heat flexion. Okay. If you don't remember anything, that is uh, by far a very high yield thing to know. The femoral nerve is responsible for knee extension and hip flexion. Hip flexion, knee extension. And it provides also, as far as sensory, sensation to the inferior thigh and medial leg. 
So it is commonly injured when you have a patient with a pelvic fracture or hip dislocation or iliacus hematoma. It can also be uh, injured when you're doing in the dorsal lithotomy position. So any hip or pelvic surgery or childbirth. Um, the other procedures are vascular procedures that involve the femoral artery and vein because remember they're in that same neurovascular bundle um, and can be injured. Anterior cord syndrome. So we talked earlier about central cord syndrome. Um, and one thing also that is commonly is that is commonly asked on the exam is to recognize the little symptoms and uh, locate where the injury is. So with the anterior cord syndrome, um, you'll have distal bilateral flaccid paralysis. You have lost pain and temperature and crude touch sensation, and you'll have urinary mutation. That should point you toward an anterior core syndrome. Remember that thoracic aortic aneurysm can actually cause spinal cord ischemia, especially of the anterior cord. Let's talk about some epidural abscess. So, epidural abscess, um, think about the focal back pain. Um, in the patient. And these can occur with patients who also are IV drug users, and you'll have fever and the malaise. And following that, you'll have progressive neurologic symptoms. So, spinal epidural abscess will present with several days or weeks of fever, malaise, progressive neurologic symptoms. You have focal back pain, nerve root pain, motor weakness, sensory changes, bladder dysregulation, um, and you need an MRI spine because surgical decompression and antibiotics are the treatment on the only treatment options. Other um, triggering events other than IV drug users, you have it in the epidural anesthesia. Um, due to direct inoculation. That's another thing to think about. So brain tumor, the typical CT MRI finding in high-grade astrocytoma, so grade five, grade four, are heterogeneous serpigenous contrast enhancement. So heterogeneous serpigenous contrast enhancement, think astrocytoma. Um, glioblastoma, which is a grade 4 uh, astrocytoma, has a classic butterfly appearance with central necrosis. So, butterfly with central necrosis. And again, central cord treatment, which is uh, central cord syndrome. Um, to go back to the central cord syndrome, it can uh, hyperextension injury, especially in elderly patients with the cervical spine degenerative changes. Uh, we talked about causes loss of pain and temperature sensation in the upper extremities and disproportionate upper extremity weakness. So loss of pain and 
temperatures, sensation, upper extremities, and upper extremity weakness. So that central cord versus anterior cord syndrome will have distal bilateral flaccid paralysis, um, loss of pain temperature, include touch sensation, and urinary retention. So that is all for our section on the surgical um, part of the USMLE Step 2. Uh, and our main focus today was on the nervous system.